meet lunch together three times a year. Me and him and his son-in-law, that's all he has left, really. So I asked him, I said, good, like sweet peas and barbells. Apparently, that's where Jesus hangs out. That's <laughs> where everybody eats. I ate there twice this week, you know. That was Steve Nance one day. Literally, I cannot go in there without say five or six people that I know. And then I got a little bandstand up there. That's, their, that's where they go to hang out. There's a bandstand and sweet peas and barbells. And then there's another place that I'll be in for lunch. And I asked him, now you have to go. Yeah, how do you decide where you're going to eat lunch every day? Think about it, maybe you can eat all day. He goes, oh, it's based on the women, man. Certain 
that and see if we're still in the fire before. <laughs> we're not doing that. H A G G A I is where we're going to be. Haggai chapter 2, one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, or the, like three books from the end of the Old Testament, if you're looking at the Bible. I want to mention something to you, and don't do it all the time, but I think it's something that's important that, that I reiterate and mention to you. Should be doing on a regular basis, and that's really my fault. Uh, I know many of you come, and I appreciate you being here, that you come and, and you, you uh, come to the worship service and you hear me teach the Word of God, and, and hopefully you benefit from that. I really encourage you, if you're not involved in a small group somewhere, we have some that meet on Sunday morning. I've got one right here in the lobby that's doing a beer coming for adults right now. And then we have one of the, the Sunday night at 5 o'clock. We've got some that maybe you bring your kids here to church. We have something called SNL for your children. And we have one that uh, takes me right across the street. And we have uh, others that meet on Sunday night. You bring your kids at 5 o'clock. Go to that small room that's from 5 to 7. Here's my encouragement to you. And I remember when Mary and I got married in uh, 1973. And one of the things that we did, and she had grown up in that church, and I have not, I've only been there two or three years, but I'm, I'm one of the personalities that, that I, I, I'll be friends with anybody, just give me a little bit of time, that this whole and I uh, become very good friends, because it doesn't take me long, I make friends with me. So, but one of the things that really benefited me as a young Christian man, and I had been only say two or three years, and married, grown up in the church, and he teaches childhood. But it really helped me to have a class when we met, and we still joke about some of the things that we, we did back then as young married couples, and how stupid we were in many ways, particularly me, not married, but me. I'm really just talking about you. So many friends that we made that we literally are friends with still this day. That was 44 years ago we got married. And just from that initial called it the Young Marriage class back then. And so these, these small groups, for a number of reasons, one, accountability, getting to know each other, and I've got a problem, I know that people in my group care for me, and pray for me, and hold me accountable if I'm struggling, that they're going to love each other, be the body of Christ. Uh, corporately, we, can do, we, we need to come together corporately, we need to and to be a frank, please take this in the humble way, you need to hear from your pastor. But you also need the accountability of being believers who are loving each other, taking care of one another, just uh, knowing what's going on in your life. And being, there's nothing else, doing life together and then going out and living in the world, being encouraged. So, again, Sunday night, 5 o'clock, and some of you actually uh, got uh, a couple of you here on Sunday morning at 9.30. I know none of you want to be here Sunday morning at 9.30. Apparently, you don't want to be here Sunday morning at 10.50, but that's different. <laughs> Alright, hey guys, you turn there. JG, GAI. By the way, if any of you are pregnant, you want to stand up and go around. But if any of you are expecting, boy or girl, hang out with me right now. You know what? Nobody else has that next. <laughs> or Randy's a great name. Apparently not. I don't know anybody in the world. Consider your God's what? What? Present. 
right? Is that the right one? Look at me now if you have considered your God's presence. Consider your God's presence. Consider that we're looking at in this minor prophet, Haggai, the theme of which is consider your ways. In the first lesson we looked at, consider your God's priorities. And here's the message of the book of Haggai. It's to stop, reflect on who your God is, and consider your ways. And it's something that we as believers, we corporately as the body of Christ, we individually as local churches, and as individual believers and families, need to stop and say, all right, God, the first lesson, God's priorities are first and foremost above everything else. And the thing he is there, they come back from the Babylonian captivity, it's the southern kingdom of Israel, of Judah. They come back from the Babylonian captivity after 70 years. And God says to them, as you go back, my number one priority for you, I, God, my number one priority for you as my children is I want you to build my temple, build my house. It had been leveled 70 years before by Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. It had been raised to the ground, Jerusalem to the grave, and they're going back to a land and there's nothing there. It's desolate. I'll talk more about that in a moment. But God says the number one priority when you go back is to build my temple. For a lot of reasons, but we've already discussed and we're going to go back and rehash those. But I want you to constantly think in your mind as we're looking at this prophet. There's four messages. We're going to look at number two today. And the, the message, the first one is, above all else, what is God's will for us as God's people? As we saw and have seen, they began to lay the foundation of the temple. They began to do the work of God. And then they quit after two years. They started out well, excited, and going to do what God told them to do, rebuild the temple. And then they got they ran into a little obstacle called the Samaritans. They ran into some problems, and they just quit. And so for 16 years, they became, became complacent and apathetic in their spiritual lives and not doing what God told them to do. And instead of building God's temple, what did they build? They built their own houses, and they built them really nice. And their priorities shifted from God's will, God's house, God's building to me. My, my priorities will be me. If you don't think that's relevant to people in the church today, you're just not being honest. Because in so many cases, if we're not careful, we become apathetic and just complacent toward the God who has done everything for us. And so as you transition into Haggai's second message here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, he begins to talk to them about been looking at considering your ways and your priorities, or your priorities, God's priorities. Secondly, he says, just stop and dwell upon the glory of who your God is and his very presence in your lives, in your midst. For, and that's an applicable example for us today. As we stand here or sit here today as the body of Christ who worships at this local congregation called Christ Church Arlington, at this moment in this room, in this old grocery store that God has provided for us, He is in our very midst. The Holy Spirit works in our individual hearts and in our corporate heart as this local congregation right now. Moving. As we'll open up his word, thus say the Lord, hear what God has to say. He's working in individual hearts, maybe challenging, 
motivated, convicting. And I cannot tell you how convicted studying this prophet has been for rain. You know, they'll say to the preacher, if you're holding out, even if your finger may be all critic like mine, you're not supposed to use it, I've been told. If I'm holding one finger at you, what am I doing with the other three? They're pointing back at me. And God, in as I studied Haggai, spending his time alone with God, he constantly reminds me, just stop, Randy. Stop. Reflect. Realize who I am. Realize I am with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Where are your priorities? Both in your time, your talent, your treasure, and what I've given to you, and how are you using it for me? What are you doing in your prayer life? Where are you in your focus? Oh, so you're a pastor. Big deal, Andy. Where are you in your walk with your heavenly father? Are you doing what I want you to do? Or do you just have a good face for the people? Is it important to you that I am glorified in your life in every possible way? We want to stop here and talk, all right. Haggai 2, the second message he comes to the people and says, let's talk about the presence of God. And the presence of God to the children of Israel, to the Jews, always represented an earthly dwelling, leading up to a picture of the heavenly dwelling, also picturing, as it goes through historically, that ultimately the very presence of God himself would walk the planet in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. He is the Christ, the Messiah. So it's called the Shekinah Word of God, the visible manifestation of the presence of God, considering the presence. It begins in the tabernacle, which was the portable worship center that the children of Israel were given after he was delivered from Egypt. God had them build the tabernacle called the Tent of Meeting. Reason it's called the Tent of Meeting and forever. When I would read that in the Bible, I thought it was called the Tent of Meeting because what kind of, what they go to the tent? They have meeting. People today still have tent meetings. Not a bunch of you see them every now and then. They'll have revivals and tent meetings. Well, the phrase tent of meeting in the Old Testament does not mean where you go to have a revival or have a meeting. What it meant was you went to the tabernacle, which was a portable worship center, a tent to meet God. The Shekinah glory of God was in the Holy of Holies. Later, it was in Solomon's temple. And that's really the focus here in comparison of Solomon's temple. To the new temple that they're going to build. So it was in the temple, the Holy of Holies, the Shekinah, the presence of God, the mercy seat, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, and the high priest would go in there on the day of atonement and he would meet God to make a sacrifice of blood to the sins of the people in the presence of God. All of that, then you have the temple. Solomon's incredibly, we'll see in a moment, magnificent temple that God had been built. And you fast forward to the time of Jesus Christ. It's just so beautiful to see all this time together. The of God. John 1 tells us in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, and the Word was God. That in the beginning, before there was time, no space time continuum, before there was a universe, before there was anything, there was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He dropped down to 13 verses in that great poem of John, it says this, the word that was in the beginning before there was a universe became flesh and dwelt, that's the word, among us. We beheld the glory as of the Father, as of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word, the eternal logos, 
eternal, self-existent one who was God became a man, flesh, and dwelt. The word means tabernacle. You see the picture? It meant we've had the tabernacle. We've had Solomon's temple. The moment we're going to see, we get Zerubbabel's temple, which became Herod's temple when Jesus was on earth. It's called Herod's temple. The focus when Jesus was on earth was not Herod's temple. It was where? The presence of God was where? In the person of the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, who was brought in the ground. He was in the temple, but he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They thought he was talking about Herod's temple. But John said, no, no, he was talking about his body. God manifested himself and dwelt with man on earth. And then Jesus said, I'm going to go away. I'm going to send you another comforter, another helper, one just like me, who will be with you, who will be in you. And then later on, you see the Apostle Paul writing about that church that Jesus was going to build. How does he describe us? We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the dwelling place of God. We are the household that's being built, living stone that the great oxymoron Peter writes about who we are. We are the house, and that's the focus of Haggai, build God's house. In this case, it was the rubble temple. But the message for us is, this is the real focus of for you to take home, for me to take home, Understanding as you see the hand of God, why are we on planet Earth from the point when Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended to the Father, and he left us the great commission with going to all the world to make learn and followers of me, and I am with you now always, even to the end. And one day we will all get together in glory as the body of Christ, the church. And the Bible says there's a new heaven. And a new earth, a new Jerusalem, and God Himself will tabernacle with us, and it will be illuminated by the presence of the light. No light of any kind except Jesus. It's the light of the world. I hope you understand it. Nothing else. What an incredible privilege it is. To be the vehicle of the church through which God said, reveal me to the world. You are my temple. That's exactly what's going on here. They had Solomon's temple. It had been leveled. So Haggai comes to them. He says, okay, God's allowed you to come back. You're supposed to be building the new temple. They will do. It will be called Zerubbabel's temple. And then you fast forward to us. We are the temple. And what is our job? Jesus gave us our job when he left. He said, it will end when I come back. So we're, we're still on the payroll. We've got our job description. It's going all the world to make learner followers. The church, it's called the church age. It's called last days. And it's where we, it's the most magnificent time to be alive, be a Christian. Because we get to go into the world and say, this is who God is, not what you think. This is who Jesus is, not what you think. This is what he did to you in the cross when he was This is what the baby in the manger that everybody's getting ready to celebrate is all about. We were talking about listening to Christmas music already. If you got satellite radio, I have satellite radio in my car. Ooh, what a two channel already. Right? You listen to Christmas music. I, I, Mary, I'm driving the other day, and the, the, 
that sample you mentioned about the shoes came up. I hate this sample, they really like <laughs> I like Christmas shoes, but that can't take that one. I just had to turn it off. But then, peace on earth. How many times do I hear peace on earth between now and January or December 25th? Peace on earth. Goodwill toward men. Joy to the world. We understand those phrases. You think most people that say them understand? What a great privilege to say to people, this is what peace on earth really means. You can be at peace with the God who created you. So you get to Haggai chapter 2. In the context of this passage, it says the people's priorities have been reset. Consider your ways. They're back to work. They started work with the temple again. They've gotten back to work. I love people because they're these people because you know what? They're just like us. Haggai comes and gives them the word of God in chapter 1. Challenges them to get the priorities right, to get back to work, and they go back to work. You get a Haggai chapter 2, and here's what's going on. They've been working. It's so beautiful. They've been working one month. One month. And they're starting to get discouraged. Sound like people might know sometimes. One month. After 16 years of vacation, they go back to work. They're work one month. And they start to get discouraged. Here's that guy's message to them. Let me encourage you with what you're doing and how special it is. Now look at Haggai 2, verse 1. In the seventh month, on the, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, I want you to put your outline right there. I want you to turn to the book of Leviticus, your favorite book of the Bible. You read it all the time. Leviticus 23. Turn there, please. Verse 34. 23, 34. But Haggai just told us, you might turn there, turn a little bit. Haggai just told us it's the seventh month, the 21st of the day of the month, and God sends Haggai to send him a message. Not an accident that it's on this day. I'm going to share with you why. They're in the month of Tishri, which would be like September or October, about this time of year. And they had three big feasts that month. They had the Feast of Trumpets, they had the Day of Atonement, and they had the Feast of Tabernacles. That's what's going on here. So it's the, it's the last day, the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles. It lasted seven days. Look at Leviticus 23, verse 34. Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. So it lasts a week. On the first day, there will be a holy convocation. You shall give no customary work on it. For seven days, you will offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day, you will have a holy convocation. You will offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It shall be a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. Drop down to verse 40. You shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast of the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month, in the month of Tishri, September or October time of year. You shall dwell in booths for seven days, and all who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generation may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. All right, go back to Haggai now. 
So it's a seven-day celebration where they all came together and they lived in tents. A tent was a tabernacle. It's also called the Feast of Tabernacles. It's called the Feast of Booths, B-O-O-T-H-S, not the Feast of B-O-O-T-E, B-O-O-T-H-S. They lived in tents as a reminder of the presence of their God. How did they get out of Egypt in the first place? God miraculously delivered them from bondage in Egypt. Egypt always pictured bondage. That was their salvation. They were redeemed. God bought them out, brought them out of Egypt. And remember the last plague that he sent to Pharaoh to remind Pharaoh, I am. It was the feast, the, excuse me, it was the plague of the Passover <coughs> death. And the houses of the children of Israel that had the blood over them, what did the death angel do there? Yeah. Oh. When you got saved, the Bible says God sprinkled the blood of the Lamb on your heart, and death happens. What happens to you? Passes over. You die physically, but you don't die spiritually. Like the Apostle Paul looked at the children of Israel, looked at the church. Christ is our Passover. See the picture? So he's saying to them, here they are, Haggai, that exact day, on the seventh day, they're celebrating, they're doing it for a week, I want you to get, get the picture. When they left Egypt, God gives them that first feast of tabernacles to celebrate that statue forever, you remember me delivering you, and remember being in the wilderness, remember me being provisioned for you in the wilderness, protecting you in the wilderness, Taking you to the promised land, remember that, my provision, my protection, taking you to the promised land. There were millions of them that left Egypt, were set free by God. Remember, they get to the Red Sea, and they look back and they see Pharaoh's army coming, and what's their response? What are we going to do now, Pharaoh? Pharaoh ain't going to be happy. And what does God do for them? One more time. I think I'll part the Red Sea for you. I'll part this ocean for you, let you walk across on dry land, and then when you get to the other side, when Pharaoh comes to get you, I'll just drown him in the same water that I just parted for you. As a reminder, what did he tell Moses his name was? I am Pharaoh. He did it. And they get in the wilderness. God has come, again, miraculously set them free, miraculously saved them. When they needed food in the morning, what did they do? They went outside and where did God put it? Just pick it up. There it is. How did Jesus teach you to pray? Give us our daily bread. Man in the wilderness said, just pick it up. God provided. So he says, Moses up on Sinai to get the law from God. While he's on the mountain getting God's law, what are they doing? They're having Aaron build them a golden calf to lead them back to bondage. If I'm God at that point, what am I thinking? I've had it with them. What have I got to do? God shows them grace. God shows them mercy. Yeah, they get punished. But he doesn't wipe them out. That's what you're doing. They will go back to bondage. They, they're thinking Egypt was pretty cool. Well, let's, let's stop thinking about that. Let's go back to Egypt. And even Aaron, the high priest, 
their enemies rather than trusting their God. That's why Moses is so hacked off when he comes off the mountain. He just spent 40 days with God. And he comes down so excited to tell the people, Thus saith the Lord, here is his law. And what are they doing? They're packing up and going back to Egypt. But God says, I want you to remember. Seven days you're going to live in tents. You're reminded they live wandering. But I took care of them. I provided for them. I gave them the land. They've been trusting in the land. Remember they sent the 12 spies in the land? And only two of them came back. Joshua and Caleb and said, What? Don't get it, God's here. The other 10 said, What? We need to have a committee meeting. We need to sit around and talk. We need to eat chickens, have fellowship, and not go in front. The church is doing that. We don't need those people are huge. We're like grasshoppers next to them. God said, already said, it is yours. All you got to do is walk in there and take it. I have already passed it and given it to you. They chose not to. God still showed them grace. They didn't go in, but the next generation did. But Joshua, but Joshua was faithful. Caleb, they were faithful. They trusted God. But now Haggai. So currently, here we are in chapter 2 of Haggai. They're celebrating the Feast of Food. Chapter 2, verse 1. They are the remnant that's come back from Babylon. Remember, they're beginning to get, to get despondent. They're beginning to get discouraged because in the middle of the celebration, we celebrated the exodus from Egypt. Millions of them being set free. There's about 50,000 of them left that have come back from the Egyptian, excuse me, the Babylonian captivity. They come back and they're thinking, wow, it was so great and magnificent there at Solomon's temple. We'll get to in just a moment. And now, it's only about 50,000 of us. We're struggling just to survive. They had a land flowing with milk honey, and they're getting discouraged. So they're getting down. They're supposed to be celebrating a good godly been to them. They're in, the, they're in the land again. By the way, why did they get driven out of the land by Babylon in the first place? Because they didn't trust God. Because they didn't obey God. And so he sent Babylon to punish them for 70 years to get their attention. And now he gets them to come back. He lets them come back. Look at, look at Haggai 2, verse 1, one more time. The seventh month of the 21st of the month, on that exact same day, 430 years previous, Solomon dedicated the first temple. Solomon's great, magnificent temple. So if you look at number one on your handout, I know we've gone through a lot of intro, but I want you to see number one. What they're thinking about is the glory of the former temple, or Solomon's temple. They're doing is living in the past. They're living in the past. If you miss everything else I say today, and I hope you don't, please get this. Because we all struggle with this. God does not expect you to live in the past. What does he expect you to do? Be excited about him right now. Live for him right now. And let's see what he's going to do. glory of the former temple. They're living in the, that excitement of, of the past. Solomon's temple, which had been destroyed by Babylon. But Haggai asked them, look at verse 2, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shetel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, 
ones that are there. Saying, verse 3, here's the key. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? In other words, how many of you around that saw Solomon's temple? Remember, it's been 70 years since they left. Well, there's still some people that maybe were children, even, even teenagers or young adults that might still be around. They didn't see Solomon's temple. Well, notice, how do you see it now, the temple? How do you see it now? In comparison with Solomon's temple, is this not in your eyes as nothing? I love this, but here's what he's saying. How many of you saw the glory of Solomon's temple? Stand up. Well, he has the old guy stand up who saw it. We're going to see in a moment. But that, I'm making how magnificent it was. Haggai meets it head on. He said, because here's what's happening. The people who saw Solomon's temple, the old coots who had seen it, are saying to them that they're getting ready to build this new temple. Oh, it won't ever be as great as it used to be. And nothing could compare to it. You know what? Physically, nothing could compare to Solomon's temple. But Haggai meets it head on. He said, God wants you to understand. Yeah, it was magnificent. But God wants you to build this temple. And he's already told you it is his house. I'm going to read you, just you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read you a little bit about the magnificence of Solomon's temple from the Bible. First Kings chapter 6 says this. This is about Solomon's temple. The whole temple he overlaid with gold. Just listen to the description. The whole temple he overlaid with gold until he had finished all the temple. He overlaid with gold the entire altar that was by the inner sanctuary. He overlaid the cherubim, the angels above it, with gold. The floor of the temple he overlaid with gold, both the inner and outer sanctuary. The courtyard, the holy place, the holy of holies. The two doors were carved, were of olive wood, and he carved on them figures of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers, and he overlaid them with gold. He spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. He carved cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers on them, and he overlaid them with gold applied evenly on the carved work. Thus Solomon had all the furnishings made for the house of the Lord, the altar of gold, the table of gold, which was the showbread, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the right side, five on the left in front of the inner sanctuary, with the flowers and the lamps and the wick trimmers of gold, the basins, the trimmers, the bowls, the ladles, the censers, pure gold, the hinges, gold, both for the doors of the inner room, the most holy place for the holy of holies, and for the doors of the main hall of the temple. And the vestibule that was in front of the sanctuary was 20 cubits long across the width of the house, and the height was 120. He overlaid the inside with pure gold. The larger room he paneled with cypress, which he overlaid with fine gold. He carved palm trees and chain work on it. He decorated the house with precious stones for beauty, and the gold was gold for parvan. He also overlaid the house, the beams, the doorposts, the walls, the doors with gold. He carved cherubim on the walls. He made the most holy place. Its length was according to the width of the house, 20 cubits, and its width, 20 cubits. He overlaid it with 600 pounds of fine gold. The weight of the nails was 50 shekels of gold, and he overlaid the upper area with gold. I hope you notice, they use a lot of gold. 
Like my mouth, I think my parents. They use a lot of gold. It's been estimated the dollars, today's dollars, that time, $20 million worth of gold. It's a magnificent one. Incredible. So some of the ones that have been around that have seen that. Can you imagine just walking up and seeing that? Solomon's temple is one of the greatest edifices that's ever been on the planet. And yet God raised up Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon to go to Jerusalem and destroy the temple he had had Solomon built. Because the people had gotten to the point they were worshiping not God, but what? The gold. The gold. What's gold to God? Nothing. For example, Metaphorically, when you talk about heaven, you talk about early gates and streets of gold. Gold to God is asphalt for me and you. We need our gold. It allows us to have the privilege of bringing the gold like you did the children of Israel to build this temple, believe or not, to build the temple. He owns everything. He created gold in the first place. He wants them to understand. Look on your hand, God. Things are going on for them. They're, dis they're discouraged. And they're disappointed. Because they're thinking with the mindset that nothing will ever compare to the form of glory. Nothing will ever one last thing I want to see to show you today we're done. In Ezra chapter 3, you don't have to turn here because we're going to read it. In Ezra chapter 3, this is actual history. After they come back from Babylon, when they get ready to start on the new temples, the rubble temple, the remnant is come back, and they're going to lay the temple foundation. Listen to what it says. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, this is the new temple, not Solomon's, this is the one. We're looking at it in Haggai. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord, according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his mercy endures forever for Israel. So far, good, right? They're excited to do the work of God. They've come back from Babylon. They're excited to build the new temple. Then all the people shouted with a great shout. And they praise the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. They come back and lay the foundation. What's the very next word? But many of the priests, these are the leaders, the Levites, and the old men who had seen the first temple, Solomon's temple, these are their leaders. The ones who had seen Solomon's temple, they wept. With a loud voice when the foundation of Zerubbabel's temple was laid before their eyes, many shouted aloud for joy. Obviously, some did not. So that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. Now look at Haggai again, verse 3. 2 3. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory, and how do you see it now? 
in comparison with it, please note this phrase. Is this not in your eyes as nothing? Verse 4. Yet now be strong. The rubble says the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. Be strong, work, do not fear. Look up here as we close. Oh, it's so important. Solomon's temple was incredibly glorious. At that point in time, God had said, build it this way. And they did. But now he said to him, build Zerubbabel's temple this way. And the glory has nothing to do with the gold. Where is the glory? The glory is the Shekinah presence of God. Notice, he said, this is my temple. Solomon's is gone. I am with you in this temple. Forget Solomon's. What's the message to us? I want to share my heart with you as a pastor of Christ Church. I've been on staff here 33 years. Sunday we opened our building in Barthes. We went from 250 to 750 in one week. One other guy and one other guy. And we never went back. Came out here 11 years ago, we had about 2,000 people. We now have about 800. Now, a week does not go by that I don't almost confess my sin. That hurts me. Because I know what has been said about me, about our leadership, and about our church. The, God has to, the reason I said he started living in Haggai, I was convicted I was living in the past. But I'm telling you, the 11 years I've been out here, Met the 80 people that came with us when we first came, I think maybe four or less. I managed to run all of that stuff off. This is a gift. But you know what God has done in the end? I've met you. I've met some people that I'll cherish it. It's in you right I've been given the privilege of doing this. I might have never had this. God says, man, work, revel in the good that I did. Don't live there. Don't live there. Especially as you get older, it's so easy to say, let me tell you about the good old days. Like walking to Willow School, I didn't have any shoes when I walked to school. Ten miles from my house to Colonial Junior High, I didn't have any shoes, didn't have a coat. They moved to school there today and got me off on the way. <laughs> you, know, you know what? my challenge and encouragement. Even the passage here at Arlington, where we are in Arlington, we need to be excited about what God is doing with things like I don't think. the opportunities that God gives us to love people, to share the gospel, and build the temple. Build the temple. As long as God allows us to build it until he takes me home, that's what I want to do. I want to build the temple. When I can no longer find my way up here, somebody else can do it. 
It's time for somebody else to be the badass fool. I want to do what God wants me to do. That's what you're going to focus on. What is it God wants me to do with my money, my time, talent? Use it to build. No, I'm not, and I'm not telling you this to beat you down. I'm telling you this what I'm excited about our church. We're not going to live in the past. We're not, Solomon's temple, were they ever going to be able to build Solomon's temple? Not unless God just said, here's the goal, do it. No. But what temple were they going to build? God's temple. And which one was better? God's temple. If it's a tent out in the dirt, and that's where God should do it. And you guys ever come in here and this was a butcher shop? Lord, butcher shop? Was it not? It's filthy. The reason I know is I cleaned it up. But we came out here 11 years ago, and my job was to take the ceiling down. And as we, as we brought this down to nothing but the bare wall, the stuff that we found in the ceiling and in the wall was disgusting. You know what? God gave us a great place. And if this thing's up tomorrow, we got to meet in the parking lot. That's fine. We have to focus on the temple, not the facts. Glory. Father, if we close out our time together today, here's my first prayer. Please take anything that was said today that is a way to get it out of you, Holy Spirit. You use your word. Not pain, but your word to convict our hearts, starting with me, every person in this room, anybody who might hear this, to be convicted to focus on your temple. What's my role in building your temple to not the past. Not what we used to do. We ain't never done it that way before. Some words of destroy that we ain't done. Lord, we want to do what you want us to do. Help us focus on that. Starting with me, for every person here who's a believer, we just simply take the next few moments as we close out our time together today and focus on, Lord, what does Randy need to do? What, what, not what the person next to me needs to do. What do you want me to do? What do I need to confess? What do I need to get right? Then go do what you want me to do. Father, there's somebody here who's not a believer. What a great time to say, Jesus, that baby in a manger came to die for me. Give me peace, Father. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. Please forgive me. Save me. For those of us who are born again, Lord, just no games. Do what you want. Honor you. We pray in Jesus' name. Please stand as we sing.